0: If you would stand with me at this time and hear God's word read as a call to worship as we begin today. This comes from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Says this Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. "...being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, the, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in, in all in heaven, and earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father."
1: Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to please grab that and stand with me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. I invite you to follow along as I read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. It writes this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Father God, as we continue to look through this passage together this morning, I pray that you have and will continue to prepare our hearts and our ears to be receptive to the truths that you would have for us to hear this morning. I pray that you would give me clarity of speech and thought as I present your word this morning. May I be found faithful as you have always been faithful to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Chapter 8 of Mark. If you haven't turned there already. I was thinking a couple days ago that as we go through Mark, this hasn't always been the case, but it, it, it seems to be the case more than not, is that if you follow baseball, you know that the pitcher you bring in at the end of the game, what do they call that guy? The closer. And as I've looked through the passages that Pastor Mark has assigned to me, it tends to be the ending chunk of a chapter. So I was kind of thinking, I guess I'm kind of like our pastoral closer or something here. Bring me in to kind of close out the chapter, which I am very happy to do. This is a great passage. Uh, It's a text that I'm sure that as I was reading through this morning, there are tidbits in there that you already knew this, right? Maybe you have stood before your your young child and said, get behind me, Satan, or something like that, because you saw something not quite godly uh, coming from them, right? Or something of that nature. Well, I'm looking forward to opening this up and, and seeing what God has for us here This morning. More broadly, if we look at Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 10, verse 52, Jesus and his disciples are on a journey. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And following Peter's confession a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 27 through 30. We find Jesus here now uh, predicting or foretelling his death to his disciples. Now, we'll find that this occurs three times in these three chapters. In chapter 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see the same uh, kind of template take place. And each time, the disciples seem to miss it or misunderstand and respond wrongly to Christ's announcement of his death, burial, and resurrection. And in each occurrence, Jesus follows with a lesson in discipleship. More specifically, what it means or what it will cost to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is the title of the message here this morning, The Cost of Discipleship. So looking at verse 31 right here, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, and we will see three things here, he must suffer many things. The true Messiah, the Son of Man, must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Thirdly, he must be killed. And then, of course, the part that uh, we really enjoy the most, I pray, is three days later he did what? rose again, right, and for those of us that uh, just need things said very plainly, Jesus even puts that in the canon right here, and he said this, verse 32, plainly, right, he says it plainly, when you speak to your children, you're trying to teach them something, how do you talk to them, plainly, right, right, I I think about the the, when I want to educate Kenzie or tell her something, I get down at her level and I start talking very kind of a little bit slower but very plainly because I want her to hear and understand what I am saying. So we'll be sitting there uh, eating lunch and she has her little show that she's watching while eating lunch and she can get kind of fixated on her shows and so we We kind of not let her have very many of those. But she's having lunch, and I was like, all right, Kenzie, this is what's going to happen. You're going to watch the show. When you're done with lunch, then we're going to go potty. Then we're going to go and take a nap. Then, after your nap, you go back and go potty again. Then you can finish your show. You all got it? She don't. All right, you done with lunch? Uh Uh-huh, all right, time to go potty. No, I don't want to, I want to finish my show! Or the show gets done and it's one more, I want one more, one more, is this just my house or is this everybody's house, right? See, Jesus oftentimes spoke in in parables, told stories, and and we've been sitting here, we've been we've been listening through these parables and these stories as they're preached. and, And if you're like me, you sit there and you wonder, okay, what is he trying to say? Right? Not only do I have to listen to the story, now I have to decipher its meaning, right? This time it's so important, so intentional, that that they need to get this and not miss it, that God dispenses with the stories, dispenses with the parables, and just says it plainly. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, and then raise again. You think they got it? The fact that he's going to repeat this two more times in the next two chapters could probably give you some insight. So, they would understand this. That, that's why. Or at least have a better chance of understanding. But this wasn't the case. Why? It seems quite plain to us on this side of the cross in understanding this. But we need to understand where the disciples were coming from in their confusion. All right? Because right now, you and I, being on this side of the cross, we can recognize, well, duh, it's Jesus. That's what he came for, right? back up and let's let's put ourselves in the disciple sandals for a second here and at least try to understand where they're coming from their upbringing their tutelage to this point short of christ as their teacher has been from rabbis the old testament prophecies regarding the messiah that's that's their their foundation of understanding here they know there's a messiah this messiah is going to come and is going to save them that's what they're thinking And we just saw that they correctly identified Jesus as their Messiah, back starting in verse 27. But their idea of who and what the Messiah was is now in question. Their messianic understanding was one of a promised Messiah who would defeat all their enemies, establish a glorious kingdom. The Messiah was to come to save Israel. But for what? From Roman rule, from slavery, from oppression, from torment? Everything here in this list from their mindset was a very temporal thing. But this is not what Christ came for. He came to save them, all right, from the rule, slavery, oppression, and torment, but of an eternal hell. See, God is thinking with a much grander vantage point here, a much bigger picture than just whatever struggles they or we now are dealing with. They expected a triumphant Savior, not a suffering Savior. To, un- to, to be told that this Messiah was going to suffer was, was unfathomable because th- they expect a Savior that's coming to save and rescue them. So get that into your mind for a moment here as we, we recognize that they were baffled at this point. Wait, you, you're going, to what? That, that ain't right. No, what? Anybody here ever been confused before? See, the rabbis of the day never considered applying texts like Isaiah 52 or 53 or Psalm 22 to the Messiah. They saw these as applying to the nation of Israel as they passed through affliction and suffering on earth. So naturally, the disciples are confused when Jesus says, I will suffer, I will be rejected, I will die. And so as a result of this confusion and some other factors here, we read that Peter took Jesus aside and began to what? What? Rebuke him. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the teacher here, right? And the disciples are the student. How many of you in your experience in class have ever rebuked your teacher? Right? Okay, this was not a, a thing where Peter's like, excuse me, teacher, teacher, I have a question. Can, can you further explain this whole, how a Messiah is supposed to suffer and, and be rejected and die? Because my understanding of the text is this. See, it wasn't a question, can you help me understand better? It was more of a, uh-uh. Jesus, come here. You're wrong, dude. That ain't gonna happen. Excuse me, What? Just imagine being in school and somebody just standing up and saying, nope, teacher, that is dead wrong. You wrong. How many degrees you got? Yeah, well, you're still wrong. It don't happen that way. Peter, sure that Christ was mistaken, pulled him aside and rebuked him. Consider this for a moment, if you would, folks. This was not... uh, I should just read my actual notes instead of getting away from because now I'm repeating myself. This was not a raising of the hand of class or asking a clarifying question. This was blatant. This was no teacher, you're wrong. And furthermore, I'm going to do, this is Peter, I'm going to do whatever it takes to ensure that you're wrong. Yikes is right. In Matthew's account, he continues this uh, section after uh, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Matthew adds, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So, so Peter hears that you're going to suffer and die. Uh-uh, not on my watch, God. Mm-mm. I will protect you. So I applaud his love for his teacher, but not how he's going about it. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, this is important to note. Jesus isn't just looking at Peter right now, being rebuked by Peter. Jesus looks aside and he looks at all of the disciples. And he recognizes that this isn't just Peter. You guys think the same thing. He's just your spokesperson. And so he rebukes Peter, responding to Peter, but, but recognizing this is to everybody, Get behind me, Satan! Now that seems harsh, don't you think? Peter was the spokesperson for the group here. This conclusion, uh, or should I say, confusion, was not held solely by Peter, but shared by the entire group. So, with the entirety of the disciples in earshot, Jesus responds with all, or with this familiar line: Why does Jesus equate Peter to the devil, though? Well, he recognizes the devil's temptation resurfacing. And what do you mean resurfacing? Remember back in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? Let me uh, read this uh, passage for you quick. In Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 8, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan! for it is written you shall worship the lord your god and him only shall you serve him only shall you serve satan asked jesus to bow down to him to simply just just bend your knee for a moment nobody's going to see it we're the only ones here Satan suggests, if you just do this, I will give you all of the kingdoms of this world. You won't have to to walk the Via Dolorosa. There will be no cross. There's no cup of wrath. There's no suffering. There's no rejection. And you know what, Jesus? There will be no
0: death for you.
1: R.C. Sproul tells us that the heart of this temptation was the acquisition of a throne without the experience of pain and suffering. Our Lord withstood that temptation as he withstood all Satan's offers. But Luke, in chapter 4, verse 13, tells us that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. I think what he's suggesting here and saying is that Jesus is recognizing this is that opportune time. This is that moment where Satan is coming to me and he's trying to, through my, my disciples, through Peter... Give me a way out. Because here's Peter saying, no, Lord, I'll be your bodyguard. You want a secret service, Jesus? It's us. And we will protect you. Jesus could have been like, you know what? I don't want to die. I asked Jesus if there's any other way, or God, if there's another way. Maybe this is another way. Mm Mm-mm. Jesus recognized this for what it was, Satan trying to tempt him yet again. Uh, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, a British evangelist, preacher, and author, said this. He says, The man who loves Jesus but who shuns God's method is a stumbling block to him. Think about that. God has a method of how to bring us to himself, of reconciling us to himself, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. It's through Jesus. And what does Jesus need to do to atone for our sins? Answer, he has to die on the cross. He has to suffer. He has to be rejected. He has to die. This is the method. And for us to say that we love Jesus, for, for Peter to say, Jesus, we love you, we recognize who you are, uh, but we're going to choose a different method, is a stumbling block. We need to do it God's way because there is no other way. So you ask, how could any of us ever get to that point? You're thinking, well, I'm never going to get to that point, okay? I recognize Peter denied Jesus a couple times, blah, blah, blah. I, I'm not going to do that, though. I'm going to learn from his mistakes, right? Isn't that one of the definitions of wisdom? Learning from someone else's mistakes? Well, the answer is right in the very next verse. How'd they get to this point? How could we ever get to this point? For you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ever done that before? Jesus simply saying, you're not looking at the situation from God's perspective, but from an earthly one. There are, after all, only two real ways to look at any given situation. You can look at something God's way or you can look at something man's way. So which do we employ? Which way are we looking? This is a question that we ought to ask ourselves on a daily basis. Evaluate our own perspective in all of life's situations. Where is my heart What is my chief concern right now? Am I preoccupied with the things of this world, or does my heart beat for the things of God? What is your motivation? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Where should our focus be? Where should our attention be? It should be on the things of God, on the things above and those earthly things that we find so incredibly important and even at times more important than the things of God, what does it say about those things? It says, put those to death. Death is a very final thing. So it's not putting those things aside for just every now and again. Put it to death. This is a forever situation. I'd suggest to us this morning that God knows all. Would you agree? Therefore, God knows best. Would you agree? Following this exchange here in verses 31 through 33, Jesus goes on to widely proclaim the cost of true discipleship, what it means. Okay, So you recognize that I'm God, the true Messiah, Okay, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to all of these things, be rejected. They respond or don't quite get it and then he follows up with, okay, well maybe we need to truly understand what it means to be my disciple. Because a disciple is someone who follows, who's a learner, who's a student. And we have the 12 disciples, but we also have this crowd we see in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him. Now, if we remember all the way up to this point as we've gone through the book of Mark, there's this crowd that's always kind of following. Jesus tells people that, that he does miracles with to, hey, keep it to yourself. Don't share this right now, Right? To the crowds because of what is already happening because they do share it right now he has this entourage that's just following him he has followers i would suggest we use the word fan not followers okay because here comes this entourage of people i'm sure with their jesus foam fingers you know and their their t-shirts and their hats that say jesus number one and they're probably having some kind of jesus tailgate party outside wherever jesus is at okay we're in football season so all that should make sense Right? So just think about fandom for a sports team and apply that to the crowd here. So Jesus addresses this crowd. He addresses even his disciples who sometimes show signs of being fans, not followers. And addresses them all and finally just puts it, puts it out there. All right, you want to be my disciple? This is what that looks like. And I repeat that to us in this room. You want to be Jesus' disciple? a follower of of God, this is what it looks like. Are you ready? Are you ready? Buckle up. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him one, deny himself, two, take up his cross, and three, follow me. And you'll be like, oh, all right, I can do that. Can you? Can I? Do we? In this verse, we find these three essential requirements to be his disciple, to deny ourselves. This means to give up the right, give up our rights of self-determination. If that doesn't step on an American's toes, I don't know what will. Give up your freedom, give up your self-determination. Right? We've been fighting with this over the last couple of years, specifically when it comes to some of the stuff going on, right? Let me decide. If I get a vaccine, and if you try to tell me I have to, I'm gonna be fighting. Right? So we understand this tension. Don't tell me we don't. But as it relates to being a true follower of Jesus Christ, we give up our self-determination to Him, not to our government. But we give up our self-determination to God following his directives, his instructions. What he says goes. No question. Parents ever said that to your kids? Follow my instruction, no questions asked? How's that work for you, parent? As children, we do the same thing to God. But a true disciple of Jesus will deny themselves, give it up. Surrender it all. You, you get to shore with your boat, you burn the boat because you ain't getting back on the water. Secondly, take up your cross. Now this might seem, well, okay. We kind of do this from time to time anyway, right? Because this is just alluding to like a particular burden that I have in my life, right? Right? And I just have to live my life with this thorn in my side or this burden or, you know, Jill with her foot being getting healed. But it just feels like a burden, doesn't it? Right. But this isn't what this isn't her cross to bear right now. Right. That's not what this is inferring. This take up your cross is something quite a bit more intense. Because, again, let's back up a little bit, put ourselves into our sandals versus our shoes here, and understand from the context of the time what this means. What is Jesus actually saying when he tells the people and his disciples, you need to take up your cross? Well, simply, die, that's what it means. Die to self. Luke says die to self daily. Luke 9, 23. This is giving your whole life over to follow Jesus Christ. So I will deny myself, yes, but then I'm going to pick up my cross and follow you. This cross is a sign of death. Back in the day, when a person had a cross and they were dragging that through town, that wasn't because uh, they they wanted to take this and put this in their front yard as some really cool ornamentation. Okay, they didn't want to just put this on the side of their barn to let everybody know they're a Christian. Okay, nowadays on this side of the cross, we understand that the cross. This is a symbol of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Amen. It's a symbol of his suffering. It's a symbol of his death. All of that. It's a symbol of regeneration with him if we accept Jesus as our Savior. So for us, the cross is a beautiful thing. Not for them. They didn't go around with cross, gold cross chains as jewelry. right? It'd be like you or I if we had like a gold chain with a diamond studded electric chair on it and you were like, that does not make sense because the electric chair is, is a symbol of death, right? That, that's where the, the worst offenders get to death row and, and are put to death. We don't celebrate that with bling, right? So when Jesus says cross, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait, what? You mean to be a true disciple, I have to die? Yes. Following in Jesus' footsteps. 1 John tells us that if we're a true disciple, we walk as Jesus did. We follow in his footsteps. So this is not just a sing wonderful songs at camp and I want to get saved and I come forward on Friday night and woohoo, I'm saved and this is going to be great. It is going to be great. Eventually. Thirdly, he says, and follow me. This is the part of believe in me. Believe what I have to say is true and obediently follow it. Don't complain about it. Don't stand up and say, teacher, you're wrong. Don't come up with a new plan because everyone in this room, I'm sure we can come up with better plans for our life than God, right? Wrong. No, deny yourself. Give Jesus, God, the determination of what happens with your life. He bought it anyway. Take up your cross, identify with God, and give your life over to him. Follow him. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Simply put, whoever lives for themselves will be separated from God for all of eternity. And whoever lives for Christ will live with Christ for all of eternity. This speaks to our motivation as well. We see in this text that it says, for Christ's sake, or for the gospel's sake. If we live for Christ, then we want what Christ wants. We do what Christ did. Our call to worship came from Philippians chapter 2, started in verse 5, but if you back up a couple of verses, it speaks of the humility of Christ. Christ humbled himself to even come here. He is God, seated in heaven. Why would you ever want to leave? He had to humble himself even to the point of death. Christ placed the needs of others before himself, Philippians 3.2. Christ lived for others and so too should we. Placing our needs, or excuse me, placing the needs of others above ours. So when I think about What your needs are. Everybody here probably has needs. Not talking wants, talking needs. And we could list out a whole bunch of our needs. But what pray tell is our greatest need? Christ Jesus Himself. True salvation, the salvation that the disciples weren't quite getting right now or understanding, comprehending right now. The gospel. So what does it look like for us to live like Christ? Well, in part, it's to go and share the gospel with other people. Isn't that our our great commission, our mission here at First Baptist? Well, globally, as the big C church, here at Carol First Baptist, we're about making more and better disciples. How do you even make a disciple? You need the gospel. You need Jesus. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, losing your soul is the equivalent of wasting your entire life. Missing the great opportunities that God has given you to make your life count for something and to count for something far greater than this temporal life in which we live. You could be the best, you could be the greatest at whatever it is. Known by everybody everybody know who Michael Jordan is? Probably. Arguably the best or greatest basketball player to ever play the game. He's in the Hall of Fame. I just was watching the the NFL Hall of Fame stuff not too long ago as one of my favorite quarterbacks was inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's awesome. That's exciting. But when you think about it from, uh, from a temporal standpoint, that's amazing. But it's almost like that's, that's like the end. That's the pinnacle. That's what you're trying to get to. But what then? Because this world will not be here forever. Jesus is coming again. Amen? And all of this world will, will, will be burned and fade away. The Hall of Fame in Canton won't exist anymore. So what does it benefit anybody to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Without Christ, all of this is worthless. There's got to be something greater than this world has to offer. I think I may have said this before, but one of I, I love to watch football, and one of the things that drives me absolutely insane uh, is when they score a touchdown, and then the dude turns to the camera and starts going like this. What does that mean? Look at Howard! It's me! I just scored a touchdown, it's all about me. Howard, right? Drives me insane. Why? Because football is a team sport, right? There's a name right here on the front of my jersey too. The team. You've heard no I and team, all those kinds of things. There's something greater than just the player, it's the whole team. So even in our worldliness, we, we teach this concept. Let's take that further. There's something greater than the team. There's something greater than Carroll First Baptist Church. There's something bigger than us. There's something better for us to be talking about. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Other than my, like my life, I mean, give my life to you, Jesus. I mean, that, that's all I can do. I, I can't make enough money, right? You, you could unanimously decide and vote together in two weeks, because you have to have two weeks notice to, to do these kinds of things, right, in our church, to start paying your pastors millions and millions of dollars per year. No amens to that, huh? All right. See, <laughs> But you know what? All that wealth that I could accumulate, what am I going to do? Put that at the feet of Jesus and say, I just bought my soul back? Uh Uh-uh. But what I can do is give him my life. I can live my life for him. For whoever is ashamed, verse 38, of me, this is Jesus saying, if you're ashamed of me, if you're ashamed of my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, it sounds like he's describing us this generation too right there, isn't he? Of him, this person, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. The cross is our only way to freedom and fulfillment. And if this news causes you shame, then I would say beware, another day is coming. The second return of Christ, the second coming is coming. So if you're ashamed of this, beware of that day. Because in that day, in that moment, your shame will be recognized and realized. You will realize and recognize also the glory of God. You'll recognize that you were wrong. And that's not a spot I would have for me or any of you to be. I would not wish that upon the the most hardened criminal. Somebody could do the worst things to me and my family, and I still would not want to wish that upon them. I know that seems hard to believe, and even I sometimes struggle to believe the words I just said. But it is coming. Good news depending on how you look at it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this might not be good news, but if you're not a follower of Jesus today, this is good news. It's not here yet. Follower, it'll come. Unbeliever right now, if you've never made that profession of faith, this is good news to know that he ain't here yet because that means you still have time. There's still time for you to confess your sin to the Lord. There's still time to believe on the Lord, name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I'd encourage you, I'd challenge you to do that today. Ask questions, come find me, come find any of uh, those that attend our church and are true followers of Christ. Say, tell me more about this. How can I know for sure? Love to tell you. Because we so often give in to the temptations of this world and the lies of the devil. Warren Wiersbe says this, that Satan promises you glory, but in the end you receive suffering. God promises you suffering, but in the end that suffering is transformed into glory. Now here's a word that you all know and we all struggle with, and it's the word patience. Right? God uses lists in Scripture a lot, and when he's listing out various things, we'll find in a number of those lists, he lists patience first, because he knows we need it. Folks, this is a life of patience. It's not right now. Jesus Christ, come to save me. He comes, the Holy Spirit indwells me. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I I am heaven-bound. One day, I'm going to be transformed into this glory as well. Oh, i got to (laughs) wait. I don't like to wait, right? Do you like to wait? Mm-mm. I drive down Carroll Street here at lunchtime and I try to find the, the line that's the shortest and get, go, and I guess I'm having a whopper today because it's the shortest line, right? I don't like to wait. We don't like to wait. But I, I, if you want to take the quick and easy way, that's Satan's way, it's going to end in suffering, Wouldn't you rather follow God's way, endure the suffering now, knowing full well that that suffering is going to be transformed into something amazing, be transformed into glory, and to be able to reside with God the Father, worship God the Father for all of eternity, rather than all of eternity in hell suffering. Would you bow your heads with me, please? God, I ask, are you a follower of Jesus Christ today? Are you a true disciple of the King? Have you surrendered everything to God? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or is there some other priority that drives you? Some other ambition that compels you? Some other goal to which all your energy is devoted? There's a word for this, friends, and that's idolatry. Idolatry. But there is a hope for us today. Whoever would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So I implore you, surrender it all to him. Take up your cross. Leave it all and follow Jesus today. God, may this be our prayer today. For those that don't know you, may they make this their life. And God, for those of us that are a follower of you, may we be reoriented, refocused on the cross, on you for all of our life. In your name we pray, amen.